Kia I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2017 festival podcast proudly powered by Spark. For many women, 2016 registered as an Annus Horribilis, one which made it clear that the battle for sexual equality, in political and sporting circles notably, is anything but won. Writers and advocates Michelle Acourt, Roxanne Gay and Mpo Tutu Van Firth suggest courses of required action in a session chaired by Susie Ferguson. We hope you enjoy it. Kia ora. Good afternoon. Welcome. Thanks so much for making the time to come along to the session this afternoon on women and power. Don't be cute and don't be smart. Now, those were two comments, pretty telling comments, that were made to me last year, and they were made to me just days apart. I was doing my job at the time. I was interviewing the two men in question, and they decided, I suppose, that a small but fairly public slapdown was what I needed. And I suppose that tells us that however far women have come, every day there are those little casual reminders of exactly where some people feel our place is in the world. And those two comments, I would say, are pretty much the thin end of that wedge. Now, 2016, for an awful lot of people, was characterized as a disaster for an awful lot of people, but certainly for women, and perhaps most obviously by the election of Donald Trump in the United States. Of course, he famously spoke about grabbing women by the pussy, and the glass ceiling also remained intact for the most qualified candidate ever to run for president. Now, reproductive rights are under threat. Online harassment becoming ever more toxic too. But are there also glimmers of hope to be seen, for example, within the Women's March movement? So today I'm Delighted, I'm also rather humbled to be sharing the stage today and to discuss women in power with three, I think it's fair to say, brilliant and extraordinary women. First, absolutely. First, we have Roxanne Gay. Now, she's, of course, best known for Bad Feminist. Um, it was described by one review that I found as a manual on how to be human. She's American of Haitian descent. She's an English professor. She's an author of a diverse range of both fiction and non-fiction. She's a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times, amongst many other things. She's also, as I'm sure many of you know, a competitive Scrabble player. <laughs> she loves pink and is even almost wearing pink today. And she also loves dancing to Blurred Lines. Her latest book is Hunger, it's coming out shortly. And also, if I can now go to the middle of our sofa, to Mpo Tutu Van Firth. She's co-author of The Book of Forgiving, and she wrote that book with her father, the Nobel Prize winner, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. The daughter of one of the world's best-known Christian leaders, she recently handed back her license to officiate as a priest in South Africa, and this was following her marriage last year to her female partner. (laughs) 
And we have to acknowledge platinum patrons Francis and Bill Bell for Paul's visit to New Zealand. A very big thank you to the patrons there. And last but by no means least, Michelle Court, a comedian and writer, author of Stuff I Forgot to Tell My Daughter, regular contributor across radio, TV, and the print media. Michelle also appears on the monthly podcast on The Rag. She's also chair of the Aunties Board, and that is the recently established charity. Yay, shout out to the aunties over there. She's, uh, this is a recently established charity. For those of you who don't know it, it gives practical help to women and to their children. I'm Susie Ferguson. For the next hour, welcome aboard the power trip with us. And just as we get started, just a couple of reminders to you all to please turn off your cell phone ringer and also to say that the Auckland Writers' Festival does indeed love social media, but please consider other people at the event when you're sharing. The hashtag on Twitter is AWF17. And I'm hoping we can take some questions from the floor towards the end of the session. So keep them in mind if you can. Let's get started with Donald Trump. <laughs> Roxanne, Donald Trump, was his election a disaster for women? It was a disaster for everyone. <laughs> Honestly, I don't think that there is anyone other than heterosexual, middle-class white men that aren't harmed by Donald Trump. Michelle, you actually picked that he would win. Yeah. I've never been so unhappy about being right about something. <laughs> I picked him win because he's not a, a classic politician. I, I think I described it as uh, if you went to see a ballet and, uh, and somebody got up and stripped in front of the ballet, people would stop watching the classical dance and watch the stripper. So he was kind of like that. He didn't play by the rules. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sorry that I've just given you all an image of him naked. <laughs> sorry. It's a beautiful yeah, that, image that you've given it. us. Thank you for that. Um, I suppose you, you begin to look at uh, you begin to look at Donald Trump, and and we increasingly have to look at Donald Trump every day at the moment. It would seem. Um, is he, um, Paul, everything you thought he might be, or is he even more, or less? Um, yeah, you know, I I think that. Um, the American public have had this uh, notion that it would be wonderful for a businessman to run the government and it keeps coming up time and again. Um, and I think that the part of the story that those who elected him miss is that um, politicians have actually been in public service um, and business people are actually in self-service. Um, mm. They got what they voted for. So what, I suppose, specifically does this mean then for women? We're here at a writer's festival, the book that for various reasons, keeps being um, referenced to this, I suppose, as Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. I know it's recently been made into a, a TV series as well, but, but Roxanne, I mean, I suppose, what is your take on, on the dystopia? Is it, is it emerging? Is it becoming real? 
Yes and no. I think that it's really easy to point to The Handmaid's Tale and say this is what's happening, but it's not. And I think it's important that we recognize that it's not so that when whatever dystopia does happen, happens, we're able to recognize it. But I think we're well on our way. Uh, every day, Donald Trump does something even more macabre that you have to look at and just think, where do you come up with this? And, you know, he's a businessman and everyone thought that was going to be really attractive, but he's actually a bad businessman. And when you have a bad businessman running the country like a bad business, you get exactly what you might expect from that. It's an absolute disaster. But fortunately, I don't think he's going to last. Mm. Yeah, but I think also, unfortunately, um, he may not last, but when you look down the yeah. rank of who comes in behind him, it doesn't look much better. No. Yeah, That's what's horrifying. The line of succession is a shit show from the beginning to the end. <laughs> uh, I live in Indiana, at least part of the time, and Mike Pence was our governor, and under his watch, uh, we saw the largest HIV outbreak, um, I think, in American history. It's a town full of people that have been decimated by HIV and AIDS because he took away the clean needle program. Yes, and so it's a town where I think 65% of the people have HIV or AIDS in the United States in 2017. And he also believes that gay people should be converted and he supports electroshock, electroshock therapy as a means of that conversion. And, and so that's the next in line. And then after that, it's Paul Ryan, so. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah. Um, I suppose as well, specifically towards women, I remember just after the inauguration and, and in, thinking in the run-up to the inauguration in January, there was an awful lot of traffic, certainly on Twitter, of people saying, this is your opportunity to you know, do something about your reproductive rights for the next four years, five years, you know, get an IUD or whatever it might be that will see you through the next period. Which, And I remember watching this and thinking, this is... Frightening. Mm. This is extraordinary that people are having to take those steps. What was it like to, to witness some of that firsthand? It made me very glad that I'm involved with a woman. <laughs> um, I, you know, it was horrifying that this is what women are turning to and that we were preparing for the worst case scenario, particularly because he has one and probably two more uh, Supreme Court picks if he lasts four to eight years, uh, which could undo so many things with regards to voting rights, women's rights, the right to abortion, and just the freedom of choice. And it, it was sad to think that we haven't come far at all, that we're still talking about reproductive freedom, and that women are like locking the area down uh, in terms of fertility, simply because we cannot trust that the government will allow us to control our own bodies. And Michelle, on that sort of score, self-determination around reproductive rights is, to, to some extent, that's, that's not the whole story, because the other part of this story here, too, is that that glass ceiling did remain intact. Hillary Clinton didn't win. Yeah, and you know... Why, why, is, the, why is the woman, the prospect of a woman with power so frightening? I have a really weird theory about this that I'm just going to flop out and see if you can... There's, there's a thing that the first powerful person in your life is your mother, mm. and part of um, becoming an adult is that you, are, that you become independent of her. And 
it's my feeling that some people who are perhaps what I would call less evolved can from that moment on never quite cope with having a woman in charge of them. Um, and I mean, you know, things like Rush Limbaugh saying uh, during the election process, how could the American public watch a woman get older day by day right before their very eyes? So it's just the most extraordinary thing to say. That's what we do, that's what humans do, we get older, right? Um, yeah, so there's just tremendous kickback. I mean, I, um, in my job, there's, I'm, I feel really lucky because when I'm doing stand-up comedy, I'm the only person in the room that's supposed to talk and have all the ideas. And I can't think of anywhere else in the world where women get to do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and so then, does that mean that we have a problem with the picture of, of what a powerful woman looks like in Paul? I mean, why do we have a problem with that? No, I don't know why we have a problem with that. That's, uh, I, yeah, I really don't. Um, but I think maybe it, it's a, a, a moment for a slight flip, um, which is, okay, we've seen what the disaster is and what then is the opportunity that the disaster offers us. Um, what, is the, what is the lesson that we can draw out of this in order to move forward? Um, it's, it's, um, it's easy and very possible to um, sit in misery for the next four years, um, or we can actually start to build the resources, communities, um, leadership cohorts that will take us out of this morass um, and create something infinitely better. And so that when you look down the line, you're not looking at it's Donald Trump or it's um, Mike Pence or it's Ryan or it's whatever else it is that, you know, whatever other swamp creature comes next. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, sorry, that wasn't nice. <laughs> well, that's right, the truth does hurt indeed, like you're saying that, yes, uh, it's certainly one way of looking at it. And so, I guess then, does that mean that you see something else being built as a result, as a, as a backlash almost to Donald Trump, and is that, does that come out of something like the Women's March? Is no, that with the seeds it, of it? So remember that, that the conservatives, the Republicans, actually took the long view. That they, you know, that this wasn't an overnight, it wasn't a one-time event or an overnight success. There are actually years of um, building constituency and um, uh, plotting and planning, for want of a better way of putting it, to, to, to bring you to the point where um, you have your um, political structure so deep, but not only at the upper echelons of federal government, but throughout the states and in the municipalities, and um, 
those of us on the progressive end of things have had the luxury of kind of sitting back and saying, well, we have, uh, you know, we have Obama. Okay, we have Obama, but then who did we have after him? And who, you know, who else was there for us to look at? Uh, and that's, yeah, that's, you know, that's the thing that we're tasked with now is get off our pity party and move on to creating um, an, a sustained and sustainable answer. Roxanne, on that score, the reaction to Donald Trump the day after the inauguration, there was the huge women's march. That, though, didn't quite solve the picture for you. Why was that? Well, I mean, I think a march is always a symbolic gesture. It's people saying, we, pro we protest this, we stand against everything that Donald Trump represents. But, you know, I think it's the beginning. It's not the end. And so, for me, and for I think a lot of women of color, we looked at the Women's March and how outraged people were on the day after the election and thought, we've been marching for years. We've been marching particularly in light of this sort of massacre of black people by uh, law enforcement, among many other things. And so it's a starting point, and I don't know that a lot of people involved in the march really understood that. But I, I, I agree absolutely that, you know, one of the travesties of the 2016 election, and I loved Hillary Clinton, I still do, and I, I, I was really excited about her candidacy, but she was the only viable candidate that the Democrats could put forward. How is that possible? While the Republicans had 18 idiots who were all like, <laughs> I can run the country. <laughs> I mean, Jesus. Donald Trump has never run anything in his life but his own mouth. And he woke up one day and thought, I'm gonna be president. And sure enough, I mean, God, give me the confidence of a mediocre white man. Uh, <laughs> So we need to, you know, find more people who are willing to do that. And, but I think we need to have people of substance and people of vision. I think sustainability is the key thing, so that in 2018, at the midterms, and in 2020 and beyond, we have five or six viable candidates each time to choose from. 18 is too many, but three is too few. And we saw the result of what happens when you put all your eggs in one basket. They break. Do you think it's possible that the Democrats or indeed the Republicans would put another, would put a woman up another time? Yes, absolutely, but... Next time? Hmm, I don't know that there is anyone. Elizabeth Warren probably won't run. There's a, there's a reason she didn't run in 2016. I don't know what that reason is, but she does. And I think she knows that whatever vetting comes with running for president, she won't pass. Because she was terrific. She's, I yeah. adore her. Yeah, yeah she's terrific. Yeah. She's really progressive. She's smart. She's willing to stand up to bullies, yeah. and she didn't run, so there's something there, and it's a shame because Donald Trump is president. So, like, <laughs> girl, whatever you're afraid of, <laughs> how bad could it be? Um, I, I, I hope that we run a woman again. I, I honestly, even though it's a, it would be a disaster, I just wish Hillary could be president. <laughs> but I, I also wish that we, I could name five other women who could take mm. her place, and I can't. Yeah. I can name Elizabeth Warren, and that's really a problem. Uh, so I, do th I think we're gonna see a woman run in 2024. Okay. 
that's a long time. That's a long time. And I mean, I suppose in some ways you could say, oh, well, Hillary did win. She won the popular vote. She got three million more votes than Donald Trump did. But, but are we, Michelle, do you think, in a, in a more general sense, not just the American elections, are we still stuck with that notion that a woman with power is just a bitch? Yeah. We don't know what it looks like. And, and even when we're staring at it, we don't seem to quite understand it. I mean, I've been uh, furious every Monday morning listening to uh, national radio, the political chat on Mondays with, I can say Matthew Houghton, can't I? Yeah. Um, <laughs> just week after week after week, having a crack at Jacinda Ardern, who is the, she's the deputy leader of the Labour Party here, um, uh, and describing her as campaigning on her looks. Uh, and the fact is she's an extremely intelligent, articulate, strong woman who does a lot of work, who also happens to be very attractive. Um, but he will diminish the work and say that she's just... So she's too feminine for hoots. And, um, and you know, you don't have to be very old to remember that uh, Helen Clark was too masculine. So somewhere in the middle there's a perfect female politician and I'm, I just, I hope it's not David Seymour. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> so, we're, yeah, we're just, we're weird about how women are supposed to look, sound, their age, their height, their weight, their voice is too light, their vocal fry, you know, we've got to stop it. Yes. Um, if I can talk a little bit about the cascade from Trump, if you like, did he embolden, enable, some people with some pretty toxic views to feel that they could just jump right out there and, and say an awful lot of stuff. And I guess, Roxanne, I would like to talk specifically, briefly with you about this, because you made a stand against one of these oh. characters. I did, I did. Just um, tell us how, how, that, how you decided to, to do what you did. Sure, um, I had a book deal with uh, an imprint of Simon & Schuster, Ted Books because I gave a TED talk a couple of years ago and um, they honestly needed a black person. <laughs> and so I said, yeah, I'll write you a book. And then Milo Yiannopoulos, who is the white supremacist, um, got a book deal for a half million dollars and I was irate. And I thought, oh, thank God, that's not my publisher because uh, my, most of my books are published um, through HarperCollins and Grove Atlantic, my fiction and my nonfiction. And so I didn't really think about it. And then a couple hours later, I was like, wait a minute, Ted is an imprint of Simon and & Schuster. And I, I really abhor everything that Milo stands for. He is a hate monger. But what's worse is that he's not a true believer. He loves attention and he loves provocation. And he incites people to do dangerous things. Um, there's been a shooting at one of his rallies and he gets all these young men frothed up and feeling really angsty and deep in their feelings, and they direct all of that against hating women and black people and Latinos and really anyone who's not white. And I just couldn't stand to work with a company and give them a bestseller. <laughs> um, when they would support someone like Milo Yiannopoulos, and I was fortunately in a place in my career where I could afford to say, I'm going to give you back your money and take my book elsewhere. And so I did. Right. 
But you got to that point, you said, I'm not doing this, no more, walk away, but, but, and I know you've written about this, what do you then say, or what does it say about the publisher themselves? I think it shows that they're willing to make money at any price. Um, they don't care what it costs them. Uh, the good news is that a few weeks later, they ended up canceling Milo's book deal, which I thought was great. Um, because finally enough public pressure mounted because Milo came out and said some things. Uh, there was some video that emerged where he said some things basically supporting pedophilia. And I know, his, this guy's a train wreck. And he's, he's an abuse victim, and so I actually ended up having some empathy for him because he's just clearly damaged in some fundamental ways and needs some therapy. But uh, I was so disgusted with Simon & Schuster's decision. So many publishers did get the proposal, and they looked at it and were like, wow, no, not us. Like, even HarperCollins, which is owned by Rupert Murdoch, um, was like, no, this is a bridge too far. <laughs> and I say that, because I, they're my publisher, but I'm fine, I don't care. Um, <laughs> and, and that Simon and Schuster looked at Milo and were like, was like, yeah, this is a good person to get into bed with. I couldn't live with that, I really couldn't. I would rather trash my career. I have a day job, I teach, so I was like, whatever. You can't hurt me, really. And I, I feel really good about that decision. The backlash sucked, but whatever. Yeah, the backlash, we may end up talking about that a little bit later on, but I suppose standing your ground, standing up for what you believe in, potentially in the face of adversity, is something, Paul, that you will have seen, that you will have lived, that is something that is, I guess, pretty much part of your DNA. Um, I come by it honestly, yeah. Um, but I think that... that I guess my experience was with my parents, it wasn't, you, you didn't think about it, this is just, this is how you do life. Um, this is, you know, this is the way you live life, that, that, that um, you live as you believe. And, um, and I thought that that was how everybody did life, and so that was the, you know, that was the train I was born onto. Difficult, though, in the face of adversity, whatever kind that may be, whether it's something that directly, you know, if it's financial, potentially, if you mm -hmm. could lose your job, you could lose your home, mm -hmm. it, it can be a hard thing to be able to stand there and do, especially if you have other people who are relying on you. Yes. Um, but what I have also found is that um, when you stand up, um, you're seldom standing alone, um, and that sometimes you're just uh, being a voice for people who have been ignored, um, who have been shouting for years and have been absolutely ignored. Um, as, as a, for instance, um, when Marceline and I got married, oh, 
I learned, we were, I was told, my daughter told me, you are trending on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever that means, apparently it's a wonderful thing that, you know. <laughs> um, but that was because I married Marceline. There are people all over the world um, every day making the choice to love who they love, um, to claim what that means, to be at whatever risk that that puts them at. Um, and, and, and I mean ri risk, like real, this is violence and death, not just um, people are gonna say horrible things to you, as, as, as painful and as wrenching as it is to have people say horrible things to you, um, blood and um, blood and death is a step further, um, and so I was absolutely willing to use the platform that I had been given because I had been given a platform. Um, but I'm that doesn't make me a hero. Uh, that just means that the, the oceans of people who have been screaming about this for years get to get heard. And so, Michelle, if you stand up for what you believe is right, if you continue to put your hand up and put yourself forward, if you challenge some of the things that are being said, perhaps most obviously at the moment by something like the alt-right, is the problem with some of that 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 can also encourage it and it can feed it? Uh, no, I think that stuff exists and you might uh, act as a lightning rod for it to come towards you. but. Uh, I don't want to get too d depressed about you know the, the men's rights activists and you know there's sometimes when um, when you can engage with kindness and empathy with people who begin spouting that bullshit, they really quickly can understand. I mean there are truly evil and hideous people, but but you know you can communicate with people and change their minds about stuff. You know ideas evolve. Um, so I, I mean, I quite enjoy on social media uh, chucking some challenging ideas out there, and then if it gets too hot and heated, going off to direct message people to explain the point of view. And so often, once you take them out of the public, shouty, screamy place into the quiet sidebar, let's have a little chat, something shifts and people can, uh, can change their minds. Is that answering the question a little bit? I don't know, but it's interesting. So, <laughs> but on, but but with that, so so what is is the toxicity part of it being in a public arena? Is it that we're all, you know, gladiators or whatever out there? And the minute you're back in the wings, the situation can change. Is that? Is that what you're getting at? Uh, no, I was really getting at the idea that people are not necessarily as entrenched in their views as they appear to be when they're talking in the public space, and that they can be open and flexible in the other space. But 
I guess if I maybe have another crack at answering the first, que answering the first question. Um, one of the things that both terrifies and almost thrills me is that I thought that when you know, good things happened, we got abortion rights in New Zealand, 1977, I can't remember. Um, they're not terrific rights, but anyway. But you, you, know, you, get, the, you get the idea that, okay, eventually, let's say 40 years from now, everybody's going to agree with the progressive idea. The progressive idea becomes the, the accepted idea. But actually what's happened is that all those people who were anti-abortion are still anti-abortion, and there are new people who are anti-abortion. Um, so so the, the, the common understanding hasn't changed. So we have to take that fight up again. I mean, that's what's depressing about all of this is that we thought we'd won some shit and we had some more shit to do, but it turns out they're gonna take that away from us as well. But that's okay, let's chuck it all on the table and if we have to relitigate it, then we have to do that. And how, how do we do it? Tell us. Um, okay, um, no, I've got no idea. Um, <laughs> Because, I mean, feminism has... I mean, it's had moments, hasn't it? Yeah. The 1960s, I suppose, is the, is the real... To some extent, that's the kind of... The cut-through that people look at, that, that a lot of people would look at and say, you know, that's when it really began, or that's when it really began to shift. Yeah. But then, equally, there are people who will say, oh, yeah, but, you know, that's proof that all feminists are just bloody bra-burning bitches. So... So, so how do you actually, how do you grapple with that kind of stuff? How do we, Roxanne, deal with, deal, how does particularly, I suppose, white Western feminism deal with some sort of regeneration? Well, I mean, I think we're having the wrong conversation. Who cares if people call us like bra burning, whatever the fucks, like whatever. Um, you know, I just, I'm 42, and you just get to a point in your life where you're like, whatever, okay, call me whatever you want. And, you know, stop treating anger as if it's this really scary thing uh, that's unjustifiable. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Like how, you know, it's not an unreasonable thing to be angry and to want to burn things right now. Um, <laughs> and so, I think we have to reframe the conversation and, and think more about how can we continue to do the work of feminism. And I think it's also important because, Michelle, I agree that sometimes when you remove yourself from the public eye and talk to these trolls, they tend to be just performing their outrage. But what happens in the public space matters. Yeah. And yeah. that's why these demagogues are so dangerous because they get people to start saying one thing publicly and that's what sways public opinion. And, and so these conversations have to happen in the public sphere. We need to have people who are willing to stand up and say, you know, uh, you're right, uh, there is some middle ground to be found, and you're right, you don't deserve to die because you're a woman, or because you're gay, or because you're black. Um, and, and it's pathetic that that's like the conversation that we're having right now, but. Um, it is the conversation that we're having, but I, I just think we have to stop worrying about how feminism is characterized because the people who mischaracterize feminism are really terrified of what will happen when women are truly equal. Um, power is fantastic. It's wonderful. I mean, of course they want to hoard it for themselves. Would you give that shit up? No. Um, and, and so we have to recognize that they're very invested in caricaturing feminism and just move beyond it. I'm just done answering questions about like, how do we rebrand feminism? I don't give a damn. Mm.
Why do you think, though, Michelle, maybe I'll come to you with this, why do you think, though, that people kind of resile from the word? They don't want to call themselves feminists. I don't know. I don't understand that. I, um, uh, I do understand that for a period of my life, I stopped openly calling myself a feminist. And partly, I've, I've tried to understand that about myself because I was openly, I was openly feminist from birth. Um, and, you know, in my teens, 20s, 30s. And then I think I was trying to Trojan horse feminism through the work that I was doing, writing and doing stand-up. If I didn't call myself a feminist but talked about my feminist ideas without calling them feminist ideas, then they would cut through, they wouldn't have some effect. And it's bullshit. Um, it doesn't work that way. It, it, they're still feminist ideas and, um, yeah, so, and I remember about 10 years ago being introduced by an old friend from university at a gig that I was doing as my friend, Michelle um, Rabid, no, she called me a strident feminist. And it felt so good. And so I've <laughs> continued to describe myself that way since. And so if it's seen as a threat, and Paul, would you think that's a good thing? If the, if the word, if the idea of feminism or calling yourself a feminism might be seen by some of your audience, by some of the people who would be, uh, who would be meeting you in that space. Mm -hmm. If they found that a threat, would you see that as a good thing? Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, 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 the term is, is contested, though. Yeah. Um, I think the, the, you know, because of, um, Feminism has, has kind of been the white Western woman's definition of what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a powerful woman. And it hasn't been a, a definition that has been created in conversation with, um, with women who have different histories and different experiences. And so that's, you know, sort of that, that's the place where I wobble slightly. And, um, and what do you think should be brought to the table that isn't on it at the moment? Um, well, I, I think that, um, that race and class and um, uh, indigenous experiences, um, that, that the so-called third, but actually two-thirds of the world um, are, you know, sort of not um, invited uh, to be equal partners in the conversation. So, you know, what, you know, what does, um, what, what does the good life look like for me? Um, what does power look like in my context? What is it that I would like um, to achieve what does equality or better than equality um, look like from where I'm sitting? Um, I think that, that that's a conversation that's worth having and then we can, we, because that allows us to get on board and move forward together. And Roxanne, what would you, if you had a, I guess a hit list of what you'd like to, to say are the things that need to be brought out more into that public arena, 
what is it? How do we do it? I don't know. How long have you got? You know, but I mean, honestly, know, but <laughs> well, uh, you know, I think that again, we have to stop talking about is this feminist? Is that feminist? What's the definition of feminism? Oh, corporate feminism. Ah, don't get a feminist T-shirt. Like, come on. Like, how are we still talking about this when there are women who are struggling? to put food on the table and to raise their children. And so I think we need to be talking about reproductive freedom always. I think we need to be talking about subsidized childcare and ways to support women regardless of the choices they make with regards to raising their children. So that a woman who chooses to stay at home and raise her children has recourse and support, um, financial support to be clear. Uh, and because it's just so cost prohibitive to raise children. And the work of raising children oftentimes falls disproportionately to women. Mm -hmm. And so we need to face that reality. We need to think about class and sexuality and gender identification and all of these things that make feminism intersectional. And I really agree with what Mpo said, like how do we meet women where they are and, and, and create feminist work that is beyond the sort of white Western canon. And we're not doing that right now. Um, we're not doing that well at all. And I include myself in that. It's just really hard to go beyond your very comfortable, you know, I can talk about feminism really well, but I, I grew up middle class and, you know, it's very, of course it's easy for me to believe I'm equal. I, I never had anyone tell me different. And um, how do we reach people who don't have those kinds of comforts and who don't have the same frame of reference or the same educational background? How do we stop wasting our time sort of tossing around theoretical names and pretending that that's enough? Um, you know, it's just not enough. So we have to just do the work. And with the labeling, your choice around bad feminist and, you know, that humans are complicated creatures and are messy and, you know, our, our beliefs don't necessarily always translate right the way through ourselves. Is that, is that helpful? Is it unhelpful? Or does it just kind of not matter anymore? I think it's helpful. I, I wrote Bad Feminist in the title essay in particular because at the time I was starting to claim feminism again and I felt uncomfortable doing so because I just thought, oh my God, I'm so bad at it. And the bar for but, feminism in publicly seems very high. Like but you have why to do you think perfect. you're bad at it? Oh, because I'm inconsistent. I mean, I watched The Bachelor, and <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. And, you know, I'm not proud of it. I know that that show is trash. Like, in my soul, I know it's trash. But what, what do you love about it? I mean, what's not to love? 25 drunk women throwing themselves at one idiot every day. <laughs> and then just like the spectacle of it all and the cynicism of the producers and like the, you know, there's like pharmaceutical rep and dolphin trainer. Uh, that's not even a joke. That's a true story. <laughs> um, the spectacle of it, and then this fairy tale idea that you can go on helicopter dates and fly to different countries around the world and basically have these really surface, boring conversations with a boring man and fall in love at the end of that. And, and that's what we all want. I mean, that's the dream, right? Apparently. I have a PhD, but fuck it, you know? <laughs> I don't need all that. <laughs> so. 
I just, I wanted to create a space where I could like be that horrible person who is so into The Bachelor. The season's starting on Monday. Um, but also recognize that I am equal to a man. And so I do hold myself accountable for my absolutely embarrassing taste in television, Vanderpump rules. But um, I, I think that it's important to say that I deserve a voice in the feminist conversation. And so what I think I did for a lot of women is make it feel more accessible. It's a starting point, though. My book is a starting point. I, you know, and my thinking has very much evolved since then, and now I know, okay, good. Now that we're having this conversation and we're saying we can all be feminist, where do we go from here? Hmm. Michelle, on that sort of idea of, of bad feminist and you know, how we're not these brilliantly consistent, perfect, cut-out creatures, is it helpful that you know, I guess that's just human nature, but is the pedestal, you know, if we put the feminist on the pedestal, look, look at the perfect feminist on the pedestal. Are, are we as women just damn keen to knock them off too? Because that's not helpful either, is it? What was the last bit you said? Sorry, I Well, the, sorry, just that idea of, of a perfect feminist, you know, the, the, the one that is completely consistent, that, that doesn't watch The Bachelor, that would never listen to oh, yeah. blurred lines, and you live in this kind of pure state of yeah. perfect feminism. Okay, yeah. You, the if, of okay, yeah, yeah. Mm, not tasty. So on that pedestal, people are, are probably pretty pleased to try and knock them off or tear them down or be part sure. of that, and so how do you engage with that sort of side as well? Or is that just, do we just go, that's another part of bad feminism, that we just can't do it, we can't always, we can't attain the perfection? No, no, but because we're human, and no. Um, and you know, part of feminism is to not be perfect, isn't it? I mean, you know, it's um, being works in progress, and uh, we, we're doing this thing where we are, um, imagining the world as a better place, which means that it takes a huge amount of imagination and mistakes and creativity and, and all, you know, there's no simple recipe for that. We're, we're working towards how we make the world a safe place for, uh, for women and children and, yeah, where people have the opportunities that they, that they deserve, so, yeah. So is it about the small things as much as it is about the big things? Is it about challenging things like period poverty? Yeah, absolutely. As much as it is about challenging the bigger things like, I don't know, you know, in the, in the kind of relatively safe environment of, of somewhere like New Zealand, is it, is it about the gender pay gap? And is it all these kinds yeah, of things as well? And is it all these little things? And does that yeah. add up to the whole? Yeah, and it's like, I think it's so much about rolling your sleeves up and, and, and getting your hands dirty and um, doing practical things. And, you know, picking the, the, the issues that inspire and excite you that you can, um, that you can use your, your place in the world to do something about. So, you know, tampons, yes, absolutely. <laughs> and, I mean, and there are some really interesting things happening. Uh, uh, businesses that are now holding blind job applications to deal with unconscious bias, because that's big, right? But so they're going, they're taking job applications where the gender is not known for the first two stages of the interview for a job. So, you know, you can't, yeah. So those, that's dealing with the ideology. We've got to do hearts and mind shit. Um, but also, yeah, getting your hands dirty. And also feminism starts at home. Yeah, and I was going to say, know, what is... And, and, 
um, having emerged from a, a heterosexual relationship, um, just recognizing that there's the daily which battle am I going to pick to engage? Um, the, you know, because life can just be a constant battlefield and is, and really is that the goal that, you know, I'm constantly at war in order to be able to create a, a better life? Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I, I'm not the bachelor, but I'm <laughs> <laughs> sorry, can't do that. No, it's, it's, I understand. <laughs> I would really like to leave a little bit of time for questions, and I'm desperately looking to see if we have time. I think we do have a little bit of time for questions. Just before we go to that, though, can you pinpoint a moment, I guess, in your life, and I would, I'd love to hear from all of you on this one, where you felt powerful, you felt that you had been able to make that difference, and, and that you just chipped away a bit more at the patriarchy? Who'd like to jump in? First? I need time to think that through. <laughs> okay. Was it dealing with Was it dealing with um, Mr. Yiannopoulos for you? I, I think so. That was definitely a moment where I unequivocally felt powerful, and I felt like I was doing something small but meaningful. And feminism does begin at home. It does begin with what is a small thing you can do in your own life to create change, and I just decided, okay, Roxanne, you talk a lot of shit, and you have to follow that up at some point. And I, there was no way that my trolls were gonna be like, oh, you can take Simon & Schuster's money while criticizing Milo, you know? And so I was like, yeah, you, I have the conversations with my trolls in my head. That's how pervasive <laughs> it is. Um, I really did feel powerful, and I felt like, Oh, finally, I'm doing something. Instead of just talking about it, I was being about it, and that felt good. Actually, um, oddly enough, the time I felt powerful was um, in a, a feeling of utter powerlessness. Um, my then five-year-old daughter, I had just, you know, I, I had had an absolute meltdown. I don't know what she had done, but, you know, mummy monster had emerged <laughs> and I had, I had, you know, sort of shrieked at her and given her what for. And I was kind of, you know, you know, slamming the pots and clunking around the kitchen in that way. And she came into the kitchen and she said to me, mummy, I don't like the way you said that. I thought, child, do you recognize that you've just taken your life in your hands? <laughs> but I thought, you know, if you can stand up to me in that way, then I've done something. You, you know, you can go out into the world and stand up to some of what's going to come at you. And I felt powerful. Mm. You've had your thinking time. Yeah, I have had, that's great. And good, can't follow either of those. But well, you know, the thing that makes me happy 
And is that what powerful is? The thing that makes me feel the most like myself and like I'm doing something useful in the world is the aunties. Um, and I can remember a particular moment, uh, Auntie Jackie is here. Um, Auntie Jackie looks She's after over there, and I now think. has a, a team of people around her who look after women who are in refuge uh, or before they go to refuge or when they leave, or um, just women who need somebody who believes in them and will stay there, stay the course. And there was a, we did a fundraising drive for one of the women who had had her teeth broken. And uh, when Jackie sent me a photograph of this woman with her new teeth that we had raised the money to, to uh, have done for her with this massive smile, none of, none of us had seen her smile before. That was, um, I guess that's a powerful moment for me, yeah. We're out of time, people, but thank you so much, all of you, for coming today. You can also catch some of the authors again. Uh, Mpotutu Van Firth is appearing in conversation at 10.30 tomorrow morning. That's in the ASB Theatre, and also tomorrow morning at 10.30. Roxanne Gay will be appearing in the free essay panel in the NZI, I think I've written down here, and also she's in conversation in the ASB Theatre on Sunday morning at 10.30. So in just a few moments' time, the authors will be at the signing table. Books are for sale. You can catch a few moments with them there. A final cura, a huge thank you to all of you for coming along today. To Roxanne Gay. <laughs> to Mpo Tutu Van Firth. And to Michelle Court as well. Thank you all for coming. I'm Susie Ferguson. Takiteano. Have a good evening. Our 2017 Auckland Writers Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews, and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud, and on our website writersfestival.co.nz